Good evening. So as many of you know or heard last Sunday, if you were at church, uh, my wife and I, we are expecting our first child in May. And we're never quite sure what the correct way to tell people is. Right? Do we say that she is pregnant and she is having a baby in May? Do we say that she's pregnant and we are having a baby in May? Or do we say that we are pregnant and we are having a baby in May? Like a lot of things, you know, I mean, obviously, technically, right, biologically, she's the one who's pregnant. She's the one who's having the baby, not me. And so this creates a little bit of a sort of disconnect, right? It teases out part of what we all know about the difference between men and women. And like most couples, we try to find a way to kind of bridge that gap. So from the moment we officially started trying, uh, we would talk about things like, do you feel pregnant? Do you seem different? Uh, Does anything feel uh, different about it? Uh, As soon as we knew she was pregnant, of course, we started talking about, well, do you feel sick? Do you feel different? How does everything feel? There's a lot of talking about feeling all over the place. Uh, And many of you who've been through this, you probably did the same thing. But imagine if I were to say to her, if you need anything, if you have any problems, let me know, I will help. But if you're just going to share how you feel, but you don't want me to do anything about it, just keep it to yourself. (laughs) I'm not pregnant. I'm not going to be pregnant. So I don't really need to know how it feels. Or flip it around. Imagine that she says to me, look, I'm, I'm glad you want to know what it's like to be pregnant. And if I have a problem, if I need anything, I'll let you know. But otherwise, don't ask. Now, if we were to say that to each other, wouldn't you think there would be something odd about that? Wouldn't you feel like there was something missing in our relationship? That there was an opportunity here for us to connect and that we weren't doing it. It would seem like something would be missing and that by that thing continuing to be missed... We create the potential that our relationship ultimately evolves to become rather shallow. Now, the same thing can happen in our relationship with God, right? God obviously is God. We're not. We are ordinary human beings, and God is not. So that creates a kind of natural gulf of differences between us. And unless something is done to kind of bridge that gulf, there's going to be the potential there as well that any relationship we might have with God could potentially also evolve to be shallow. This is why Christians believe in the notion of the incarnation. And the notion of the incarnation is critical to understanding the Christian view of God. So as Aubrey mentioned, we're in the midst of a three-part series on understanding the Christian view of God. Part of the claim that I'm making in this series is that the Christian view of God is distinct. It's not the same as the view of God that you would find in other theistic religions like Judaism or Islam or Zoroastrianism or versions of Hinduism that are monotheistic or ancient Greek monotheism. There are many theistic religions, but only one that holds to the Christian view of God. This view is distinct because it holds that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. God's a triune incarnate redeemer. But what do these mean? What does it mean to be triune? What does it mean to be incarnate? What does it mean to be a redeemer? How are these possible? How can 
three persons still be one God? How could God become a man or how could one death save the world? If these did make sense, is there any reason to believe in them or is it just something you have to take or accept on the basis of faith? And how might they make a difference in our lives if we were to believe them? This is our challenge for the series. Now, as Osama mentioned, uh, these are serious enough questions on their own uh, to do within uh, now 40 minutes. So we have to make some working assumptions in order to have any chance of doing a good job at this. Now, in making these assumptions, I'm not saying that these are trivial or that they don't deserve serious consideration. In fact, they do deserve serious consideration, and so I'm not going to insult them by giving it a quick discussion now. So as Aubrey mentioned, uh, these are several issues that are important but that we can't really address here. First is, we're going to assume that it's appropriate to use reason independent of Scripture to think about God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be struck by that. It might seem to you like, well, don't Christians just believe things only on the basis of faith? Well, believe it or not, there actually is a long-standing tradition in Christianity of defending belief in God and belief about the nature of God on the basis of reason alone. This is actually called natural theology. But there are some controversies about it, which we are going to set aside and assume from here on out that this, what we are doing, is appropriate. Second, we're going to assume that classical theism is true. Classical theism is the view that there's an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, personal being who created the world. This is something that's affirmed by many religions. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, many religions throughout the world would accept this. By most surveys, around two-thirds of the world's population is a member of a religion that affirms this. About 90% of Americans as well. Um, it's a serious issue, but one that we can't discuss seriously now and still talk about the Incarnation. So if you're interested in this, talk to Aubrey, talk to me. Perhaps we can do a series on this in the future. Third assumption, I'm going to assume that Christianity actually does hold that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. Over time, there have been people who have claimed to be Christians who denied one or more of these. Um, but in order to answer them, we would need to look at history and scripture in a way that I'm not going to do here. Aubrey would speak far more eloquently on this than me, so I'm going to leave it to him to do that for another time. Fourth, I'm going to only try to talk about the core of each of these doctrines. Particularly when we talk about the Incarnation, and next week when we talk about redemption, since these are so critical to Christianity, there's so much we could say about them. We're only going to talk about the core. Those of you who are Christians, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, think of this as in the same spirit. What's the core? And then finally, there's a number of different levels at which we could do this. If we wanted to, we could do this in terms of the language of analytic philosophy. I could do it all in terms of symbolic logic. We could do it in terms of the language of systematic theology, talk about all of the creeds, all the councils, all of people who have talked about this through history. But we're not doing either of those. This is an introductory level. Now, I intend it to be a serious and thoughtful, but still ultimately an introductory level. If you want the further, we can talk about that sometime. Final disclaimer, the ultimate meaning for a Christian of God being incarnate is connected to God being redeemer. So in a sense, the next two weeks are related. Quick preview of next week, God being incarnate actually is part of what God has to do to be redeemer. 
But there is also a meaning and reason behind God being incarnate that's independent of him being redeemer. And that's what we're going to explore tonight. Now, a little extra challenge to those of you who regularly go to the Church of the Incarnation. The name of our church is the Church of the Incarnation. And so we really need to have a sense of what does the Incarnation mean for its own sake. What is it really all about? Why is that worth having as the name of your church? What does it mean to say that God is incarnate? Start with the official doctrine of the incarnation. In one line, we can say, or the classic view has been, that Jesus is one person with two natures. Jesus is one person with two natures. You can think of this as actually the flip side of God being triune, where that's three persons who are one God. This is one person with two natures. Now, what does this mean? Well, we've got to have some definitions. What this is supposed to mean is, what do we mean by person? Person does not mean human. Okay, we'll talk later about what a human is, but person does not mean human. Person, on this view, is a self-conscious mind that can think or feel or act. Now, if we want to, we can add a little bit about the level of sophistication of that mind, but I've simplified it a little bit. Typically, the notion is that... um, To be a person, you have to have a certain sophistication in your mind. It's got to be self-conscious, capable of thinking, feeling, acting. So that's what a person is. What is a nature? A nature is a set of characteristics that make something the kind of thing that it is. set of characteristics that make something the kind of thing that it is. So if we talk about the nature of a triangle, that would be being a uh, closed two-dimensional figure that has exactly three interior angles. Right? Those are the things that make a shape a triangle as opposed to a square. Or if you think, what's the nature of a, I don't know, a hobbit? Right? A hobbit is uh, sort of humanoid that's short and I guess doesn't like footwear. Um, I never quite got that, right? Why don't they wear shoes? Is it just that their uh, feet are really tough or is it like a religious thing? That's kind of was unexplained. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I sort of wondered, like, do the... Do parents say to the teenage hobbits, like, you can go out and hang out with humans, but you better not ever try on shoes. I, I, don't, I don't know. So, right? So, nature is something that makes the thing the kind of thing that it is. So, the Christian claim is that Jesus starts out, right, as God, has a divine nature. This is his original nature. This is how he starts out. And, of course, by divine, we mean everything or the Christian means everything that's part of the classic theistic definition of God, that Jesus is omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, personal being who created the world. Right? We talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about the Trinity. And if you want to know more about that, it's now posted online. You can go to the church's website and listen to it. Um, so he starts out with a divine nature. But then claim is that Jesus later on voluntarily added a second nature, that Jesus then becomes a human. Now, this is not meant to mean that he replaces his divine nature with a human nature, but that he adds on a second nature. So the claim is that Jesus becomes one person with two natures, one divine and one human. Now, there are a lot of ways to misunderstand this. 
So I like to talk about kind of two major ways that you can get confused about what this is supposed to mean. Now, in a minute or two, we're going to talk about some theoretical objections to this, and then later we'll talk about an argument in favor of it. But for now, just trying to understand what is the Christian view actually trying to say. So the first way that you can misunderstand the incarnation is to think that what Christians are saying is that Jesus is divine in sort of an analogy way or as kind of appears like he's divine. So, for instance, um, someone might say, well, Jesus was a prophet and so is sort of divine in the sense that kind of by analogy because he has sort of some special knowledge that God gave him. Or that Jesus is not a prophet, but a really powerful being, like an angel who has like special power. Christianity is not saying that Jesus was just a prophet, and is certainly not saying that he's like a very powerful angel. Instead, Christianity claims that Jesus is fully divine and fully satisfies the definition of God on classical theism. That, God, that Jesus is omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, personal being who created the world. It's not an analogy. It's not just an appearance. Now, sometimes Christians unintentionally kind of go along the same lines. Sometimes Christians unintentionally miss Jesus' divinity. In particular, they neglect what I'll call Christ before the manger. Right? If the Christian claim is true, if Jesus really is right, the creator of the world then he did not come into existence on Christmas Eve or when Mary became pregnant. Right? We typically, if you grew up as a Christian, you think of Jesus, you know, Jesus in the nativity scene, right, the little baby, and you think, okay, nine months ago, he, you know, before this, he came into existence. Well, if Jesus is, is God, Jesus existed from the start. And if you ever want to do a really interesting Bible study... As a Christian, go back and look in the Old Testament for all of the references to the angel of the Lord. And many of them, if you read the text carefully, you will see that the angel of the Lord is actually said to be God. And so many Christians hold that what this actually was, was Jesus making a pre-incarnate physical manifestation of himself to speak to Abraham or one of the other uh, patriarchs in the Old Testament. Theologians call those theophanies, right? And there are a lot of religions that do that. That was, so to speak, before he became incarnate. So if you're a Christian, watch for that, right? There are a lot of passages in the New Testament as well that talk about Jesus' role in creation or other things that Jesus was involved in prior to the manger. Second way you can make a mistake in understanding the incarnation is to think of it as Jesus taking on the form of a human temporarily or that this was something that was done multiple times. There are other religions that talk about, quote, incarnations of God, but they mean something very different than Christianity does. So, for example, um, in uh, ancient Greek uh, mythology, Zeus temporarily takes on the form of a human being to chase after women and even inanimate objects in some case. That's not what... The incarnation is supposed to be, right? Jesus was not temporarily a human. It wasn't just a theophany. It wasn't just a temporary manifestation, nor was it one of several, right? So in some Eastern religions, God is thought to have had multiple incarnations over time. Some people said, you know, different prophets throughout time were different, quote, incarnations of God. That's not what Christians are claiming. Christians are claiming 
that the incarnation is not just a theophany, nor is it a, quote, Christophany, right? So that would be the Old Testament appearances of Jesus that some Christians think uh, were happening. Christianity claims that Jesus becomes a human permanently. This wasn't temporary. This was permanent, and it was once, right? By virtue of being permanent, obviously, he can't do it again. So it's a one-shot thing. It happens, and it is forever. There are no other incarnations of God on Christianity. Now, Christians can sometimes also unintentionally stumble into getting confused about this when they neglect Jesus' humanity after his time on earth is done, after his ascension. This is the Christian doctrine um, of Jesus sort of bodily, quote, ascending into heaven, and that's a metaphor of ascending. Obviously, heaven's not up in the air. A Christian would say that Jesus is still a human and still divine, that this is still true now. Some Christians neglect the notion of, they'll think of Christ the king, but they neglect that he's a human king in addition to a divine king and unintentionally commit this sort of same mistake of neglecting Jesus' humanity. So the Christian view is Jesus is fully divine and fully human. Now you might say, all right, fine. Christians think that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That doesn't make any sense. So let's talk about that. How is it possible for God to become a man? There are a number of different ways to put this objection, and all of them at the end of the day kind of come down to one primary claim. Uh, I'm going to talk about kind of two versions of it, and they both basically amount to this, claiming that the traits of divinity are inconsistent with the traits of humanity. Right? Theoretically speaking, that what makes something a god and what makes something a human are incompatible. In other words, that even an omnipotent being couldn't make it happen. Right? That it's, so to speak, without any coherent explanation of how it could be. Now, just to note for a minute, it's not enough that, they, that humanity and divinity are different. Right? For this objection to work, it's not enough that divinity and humanity are different. For the objection to work, it would have to be logically or theoretically impossible for both of them to coexist. That's a pretty bold claim. No coherent explanation exists. So, for instance, um, take the concept of a round square. A round square. Right? This, theoretically, is an impossibility. Right? If something is round then it is not a square because a square has, is a closed figure with exactly four interior angles. Of course, uh, something that's round properly doesn't have interior angles, right? It's a circle. So that would be a theoretical impossibility. What the objector is claiming is that that's like the notion of the incarnation. But note that it's not enough that they be different. There are lots of things in life that uh, might seem very different, but they're not incompatible. For example, as Aubrey mentioned, I am a philosopher, and there are people who've met me in other contexts who, for whatever reason, didn't believe I was a philosopher. Now, obviously, you did because he told you that I was one, and I'm up here talking about philosophical stuff. But sometimes, uh, particularly for whatever reason, I've found that um, I like to wear suits, I like to wear tailored jackets, dress shirts, and for whatever reason, that doesn't seem to fit what people think a philosopher should look like. 
Now, I don't quite know why, but somehow this is what people tend to think. And I can think of one particularly dramatic example of this. Uh, before, way before I met my wife, uh, I was introduced to this young woman. We started talking, and somehow it came in conversation that I was a philo- I said, you know, I was a philosopher, and she said, "No, you're not. You're not a philosopher." She thought I was like making it up, and I that struck me as very puzzling because, like, why would I lie about being a philosopher? <laughs> as if it was like a pickup line. <laughs> And that struck me as even odder because, like, where are all the guys going around just saying they're philosophers to impress the ladies? It's not like I said, you know, I'm a philosopher. That's right. And when I saw you, I said to myself, now there is a rational woman. And I just had to say to myself, I want to get logical with her. Now, that would be a pickup line. It would be a bad pickup line, and I never would have ever said anything like that. But obviously, being a philosopher and liking to wear suits is not actually incompatible. It just, for whatever reason, some people, they don't associate them together. So it's not enough that divinity is different from humanity. There would have to be something about them, like the notion of a round square, that was somehow logically inconsistent. So we'll talk in more detail about what the objector thinks that is. But first, let me lay out how Christians typically think the incarnation is supposed to work. So this is one explanation of how the incarnation might work. There are others that are out there. And it goes back to kind of what we said about what a person was. So let's go start with that. A person is supposed to be a self-conscious mind that can think, that can feel, and that can act. Now God, on the Christian view is a person, in fact, three persons, we talked about that last week, and, of course, humans are persons. So the idea is that the, the notion of God adds something onto this. To be a divine person, you are a self-conscious mind that thinks, feels, and acts, and you're omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, and creator of the world. So divine person adds something on there. What Christians would say is that human also adds something onto the notion of person, right? We are persons like God, or some people would say angels are persons, but there's something different about humans that means we're not just minds, right? Yes, we are ultimately at the end of the day a mind, but there's something else about us that makes us human, and that is, has to do with our physical bodies. Human beings have a particular type of physical body that they are integrated with. Obviously, they can exist independent of it, but that they are meant to somehow function with a body. Let's say, or let's call that, bodily integrated consciousness. So there's your fancy word for the day. So human beings are self-conscious mind, but we're not just any self-conscious mind. We're not sort of floating out in space. We have a consciousness that's integrated with a body. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it sort of means is this. By having a body, we receive information through that body, right? We have our five senses, right? And, and obviously, there's other senses, I guess, beyond, beyond the five. And those senses give us information about the world. And we take that information along with some innate knowledge and or conceptual senses, whichever is your preferred account. And then we make inferences from those. 
And what we know, we essentially derive from those combinations. And our consciousness is very much focused upon what we receive or can infer from our senses plus whatever we have kind of innately. In addition, when we act in the world, we act by means of this body. Right? I mean, assuming we don't believe in telekinesis and so forth. We don't just sit there and think and then chairs move, right? We actually have to move the body in order to make things happen in the world. So by bodily integrated consciousness, what we mean is that our thinking and feeling, right? Two of the functions of being a person, that ours are focused upon something. They're focused on information that we get from our bodily senses and then from either uh, sort of conceptual senses that we might have um, or innate knowledge that we might have, and then what we're able to infer from that, right? So our mind is kind of oriented towards thinking and reasoning based at least in large part on what we get from our physical senses, and then the actions that we take in the world also are done sort of by the means of the body. In other words, by being integrated in our consciousness with our body, our body is sort of a means by which we come to know things, by which we come to do things in the world, this is part of what makes something a human. So the suggestion is that this notion of humanity is compatible with the notion of divinity. Now you say, well, how, how is that? Well, it's entirely possible for someone to have traits that they choose not to use. So for instance, when uh, we eventually have uh, our child and perhaps future children... Uh, we might, Darcy and I might sit down and play uh, some board games with them. Those of you who know us, you know that Darcy and I enjoy strategic games. I suspect that when we first start playing games with our children, that we will not try as hard as possible to absolutely, completely slaughter them every time we play. Well, at least I won't. Darcy might, but I, I wouldn't. Right? So they don't even score any points, right? That they just, you know, they're running away crying and they just think that they're stupid, they can't win at all. We would not do that. Right? We would somehow find a way to not throw the game, not intentionally make stupid choices, right? but to somehow restrict our thinking so that they have a chance against us. So, for instance, we might uh, approach the game very tactically, just think totally in terms of what seems like a good move now, but not have any sort of broader strategic vision of what we're supposed to be doing, which you might think is how kind of children often will play games, is they'll just sort of do what seems right now and not think of the bigger picture, and then see how that goes. Um, or alternatively, right, um, you know, if we're playing a sport with, with our child, we might not use all of the skills that we have. We might restrain ourselves from doing it. But that doesn't mean we lack the skill. It just means we are choosing not to use it. Um, in a similar way, when we, we knew we were pregnant in September, but we didn't tell anyone for quite a while. And so when we were around other people, we focused our mind away from being pregnant, although I'm sure some of my students after we told them were thinking about all the examples that I might have used in class that involved being pregnant or children or things like that and said he was actually thinking about that. But you sort of try to focus your attention away from it so you don't accidentally bring it up. But that doesn't mean we didn't still know it. And so the Christian suggestion is, is that God, as omnipotent, right, Jesus, could decide to not use all the abilities that he has, could choose to accept that he is going to have his mental focus beyond what he could receive from a particular physical body. So the suggestion is that to become human, Jesus creates a human body and then 
adopts a kind of operational limitation on himself of receiving information from this body and then focusing on that and whatever kind of innate knowledge humans typically have and trying to infer things from that. He would still know all of the things that he knows as God and still be able to do all of those things, but he's simply choosing not to do them. In becoming human, the idea is that Jesus creates a human body and then adopts operational limitations of bodily integrated consciousness. So now how does this play out with the objections? So we'll take the objection from two angles. So first way to look at it, um, something about being human makes it impossible also to be divine. Right? So the objector could kind of go at this from two angles. If they say that being divine and being human don't go together, they could start out by saying, there's something about being human that means you can't also be divine. So, for instance, uh, they might even, uh, I said I wouldn't t- say too much about Scripture, but there is a passage in Scripture where Jesus claims not to know something. He claims that he does not know the time of his second coming. So you might say, Jesus, as a human, seems to not know some things That's incompatible with him being God. Well, given what we said about uh, being human having to do with having a sort of bodily integrated consciousness and God having the ability, if he so chose, to limit himself to that, we can think of an answer to this. And the answer would be that um, Jesus' divine knowledge of the timing of his return would have been part of, at that moment, what he was not consciously focused on. It would be part of the sort of uh, operational limitation is that he wouldn't be thinking about that just like we wouldn't have been thinking about being pregnant when we were trying to avoid accidentally telling people. And obviously, since God is omnipotent, he'd be a whole lot better at constraining himself than we are, right? right? All of us have at different points found ways to deny things about ourselves or not think about them. An omnipotent being would be even better at it than we would. So one response is to say that Uh, This sort of split of consciousness is what Jesus was referring to there. But there's actually another response that basically says, when he said, I I don't even know the time of my return, he was basically saying, I ain't telling you. Because the word knowledge in Scripture doesn't always mean facts in your head. Right? Thinking about um, the word in Scripture is often used for so-and-so knows his wife, and then they have a child. That doesn't mean a bunch of facts in his head. Right? Or think of the passage where Jesus refers to the people coming to him um, at the judgment seat and talking about all the miracles that they did. And he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, that doesn't mean he didn't factually know what their name was or what they did. It meant he didn't have any relationship with them. That there was an intimacy or a connection there that was absent. And so perhaps one could say, second option for a response would be to say, He did actually know, but that his role within the Trinity was not to decide that. That's something we talked about last week. And so perhaps what he was saying is, it's not for me to reveal this or to decide this. And so even though it's a fact in my head, it's not my role to say. Much like my mother, for the month and a half that she knew we were pregnant but couldn't tell anyone, would respond when people said, "Uh, are Noel and Darcy ever going to have children? She would say things like, "Um, well, when they... Uh, are, they will let us know, right? In effect saying, not, right? In effect saying it's not for me to say, but without actually revealing that she does know, right? Because the point is not to say, I know, but I'm not telling you. It's just to say, 
It's not appropriate for you to find out in this context. Second objection, or second version of the objection, is to say that there's something about being divine that makes it impossible to be human. So this is kind of going the other direction. God is supposed to be morally perfect, right? Jesus never sins, right? This is a claim, of course, that Christians make. And so someone might say, well, that's a divine trait that no human could have. For instance, we all heard the phrase, what is it to be human? To, to err is human. What a terrible phrase, right? But nonetheless, people say that, right? You might say, uh, how could a morally perfect being be a human? There are two responses to this, and they have to do with the question of how are we to understand the idea of Jesus being God, being morally perfect, but still being tempted, right? Being tempted to do things that are evil or tempted to sin. So one response goes back and appeals to this notion of different levels of consciousness that Jesus has and says, in effect, that Jesus did not have the ability to sin, but that he still felt tempted because he was not aware of the fact that he could not sin. In other words, that that was part of the split of consciousness is that he did not know that fact, and so he still felt as though there was some chance he would end up sinning, but then, of course, ends up resisting and not doing so. So the first response, or the first potential response, is to say he could not have uh, done evil or sinned, but he still felt, emphasis on felt, temptation, because his divine knowledge of his inability to do evil was part of what he was not focused on at that time. So that's one response. And these two responses actually are, you can't take both, you've got to pick one. Uh, so one sort of side of the Christian tradition goes down this route. The other side of the Christian tradition goes down a different route and says, uh, look, Jesus was a person, he had free will, and so he did have the ability to sin, he just didn't do it. And so what that view would basically say is that the nature of God includes in it, like many natures, some things that are essential and other things that are chosen. So just like God chooses to create the world, God chooses to be morally perfect. All right, so if you go down this route, you would say that Jesus could have done evil. He could have sinned. He's got free will. God's moral perfection on this view, like his creation of the world, is something he chooses. He chooses to make that a part of his nature. It's not something that he, so to speak, has inability to do otherwise. Now, either of these will be adequate for the purpose of defending the incarnation, right? Obviously, they touch on other views that we're not talking about, like the notion of free will. We'll save that perhaps for another time. Just a, just a little temptation there for you. So the Christian response to the objection that divinity and humanity are incompatible is to say that humanity can be thought of as something that Jesus adds on to himself by at adding a physical body that he then chooses to operate through in what he learns and what he does from the point of the incarnation onward. Now perhaps you're saying, all right, fine, maybe that makes sense. Why would I want to believe that? Is there any reason to believe that apart from quoting Scripture? Is there any a priori or theoretical reason why a God would want to become incarnate? There is within the Christian tradition a philosophical argument that God has good reason to become incarnate. That there's reason to think 
that a omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect creator of the world would want to become incarnate. So it starts out uh, claiming some things that are, any theist would claim, which is that God is the morally perfect creator of all other persons. Right? So any person other than those inside of God, whether that's one or in the Christian view, three, all the other ones God created. Now, part of being morally perfect is that you, or part of moral goodness, is that you seek out to know other people. That's part of what goodness is. Goodness is um, about how you relate to other people. Part of being morally good is seeking to know or to relate to other persons. Now, think back to my story at the very beginning. Right? Imagine if I were to, imagine again, if I were to say to my wife, um, if you need anything, let me know. But if you're just going to talk about what it feels like to be pregnant, I care about you, but I don't care about what it's like to be pregnant. I don't care what it feels like. I'm not pregnant. I will never be pregnant. I'm a man. I really just don't care. Wouldn't you think there was something odd about that? Right? Doesn't it seem as though caring for my wife while she is pregnant somehow implies that I care what it feels like to be pregnant? That you can't separate those. Now, obviously, there's a limitation, right? I can't actually get pregnant, but... I can at least do something to try to imagine what it would be like or to seek out information that would help me to identify with her. This is why, for instance, um, I might say we are pregnant, right, because I'm identifying with her. I'm putting myself in the same category as her, obviously by analogy, kind of like when um, after the terrorist attacks of 9-11, many of the world leaders said that today we're all Americans, Right? It wasn't that they were changing their citizenship. It was that they were sort of identifying with other people who were experiencing something that they cared about or they were concerned with. Part of loving relationships or part of knowing someone at the deepest level is that you try to know or to feel or think what they feel or think. Or you try to face the challenges or think about what it would be like to face the challenges that they do. Or that you are willing to be categorized as the same as them. We'll call this mutual identification. To know or to relate to another person in that deepest sense, not in the shallow sense, in the deepest sense, involves mutual identification. And what we mean by that is um, where it's possible and where it's uh, morally permissible, you try to think and feel what they do. You try to face the challenges that they do, and you're just kind of overall willing to be counted among them. Right? Many of you have te- sports teams that you like. What do you do? You wear shirts that show the sports team. You're willing to be categorized as someone who likes that team. So often, if, after they lose a big game, if you're really a devoted fan, what do you do the next day? You wear the shirt again, right? So you're saying, I'm not a fair weather friend, right? I, I'm, I'll root for them even when they lose. Right? I'm still willing to be counted among them. Or if there's a major world leader who dies that you identify with, you might wear a black armband to say, I'm counting myself among those who care about that world leader or care about that person. Part of our deepest relationships is that we make effort to do this. Now, obviously, there are some constraints, right? If you have a loved one who's gotten into drugs, you're probably not, you you know, you're not going to go out and do drugs just to know what it feels like, right? Obviously, there's a limit on what's appropriate, but you might say to yourself, 
I don't know what it's like to be addicted to drugs, but I know what it's like to have something that you really like to do and you have a hard time stopping, right? Whether that's you can't stop eating, you know, Doritos chips or you can't stop eating chocolate or there's some habit that you really like and you can't let go of, you might think of it, well, that must be what it's like for them, right? That's part of identifying with them is thinking about what would it be like if I had that with something like drugs or or alcohol or whatever it might be. So, if God is morally perfect, it is the creator of all other persons. And part of being perfect is wanting to know or relate to other persons. And part of having the deepest relationships with others is mutual identification. That would mean that God has at least good reason to want to identify with us. And to have us identify with him. Why? Well... Right? If you're perfect, that means you don't just want to have relationships, you want to have the best relationships. And part of relationships, getting to that highest level or the deepest level is mutual identification. Now, if you think about what would it mean for God to identify with us or God, or us to identify with God? Well, there's a whole lot of limits on this. Right? I mean... There are a lot of limitations on how much an ordinary human being can think or feel what God does. I mean, have you ever thought about what is it like to be God? Obviously, if God's a person, there's some way we can kind of mutually identify, right? I mean, you can think about, hey, I've created stuff. I wouldn't want people to trash what I created, right? So you might say, well, I understand that, you know, God would be upset to see us destroying his creation or damaging other people. Um, we can identify there. But there obviously are some limitations, right? The problems that God faces, well, he's omnipotent, right? I mean, we're, we obviously face problems we face. Are, we're pretty limited in what we can do. God obviously has a much greater range of things he's capable of doing. How do we identify with that? And actually, if you flip it around, God actually has the same problem with us. Now, this may sound a little counterintuitive to you initially, Does God know what it's like to be a human being? Well, if God is never incarnate, his knowledge of what it's like to be a human being is like my knowledge of what it would be like to be pregnant. It's restricted to just the facts. Right? All that I can ever know about being pregnant is just at that factual level, facts in my head. Even if I constantly nag my wife, what does it feel like? I'm there in the delivery room. I see everything. I quit my job and go to medical school so I can become an OBGYN and spend the next 30 years studying about pregnancy, delivering hundreds, thousands of babies. I would still be missing something, right? There's that first person experience that I would still never have. And so even when we say God is omniscient, we're talking about his knowledge of the facts, there's still something that's missing, the first-person experience. Now, obviously, there's a limit as to how far I can go to identify with Darcy in being pregnant. I can't actually become pregnant, so there's a limit. And obviously, with other human beings, there's a limit as to how far we can go. But there is something God can do to bridge the gap with us. If incarnation is possible, that's something he could do. Right? God has can overcome the limits that we typically can't, right? I can't know what it's like to be pregnant, but God can actually know what it's like to be a human if he becomes incarnate. By becoming incarnate, God actually gets to feel what it's like to be human being. 
feel the pains, feel the sufferings, not from the third party point of view, but firsthand. Knows what it's like to be, to have your friends turn on you. Know what it's like to, right, be hungry, right? I mean, obviously as a spirit, as a non-physical being, he would have no idea what that's like, right? He can theoretically know it would feel bad, but he wouldn't know it firsthand. So what this means is, for us to really have deep mutual identification between God and human persons, God would have to become incarnate. If God does not do that, there will that gap, that gulf will remain. But since the suggestion is that right, God has reason to want to mutually identify with us, he would then have strong reason to want to become incarnate. So, the argument is, as a morally perfect being, as morally perfect creator, God would want to have relationships with us. The deepest relationships require mutual identification. Mutual identification wouldn't be possible with humans unless you actually become a person, right? There, uh, become a human. There'd be a significant limit prior to that. And so God has reason to want to become incarnate. Now, with my last few minutes, I want to talk about what difference does this make? What difference does it make for God to be incarnate? Christians often are accused or joked about of saying that Jesus is the answer to every question. Right? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, Jesus is the answer. Have you ever looked at that and thought, well, then what's the question? Right? That's kind of like the sarcastic side of you looking at that. Or there's the joke about uh, the Sunday school class where the kids aren't paying attention And the Sunday school teacher asks a question, no one answers, and so they call on someone, and the kid says, well, I don't know what the question was, but the answer was Jesus. How does that make sense? Well, if, in fact, the way that we are able to identify with God at a deeper level is because of Jesus' incarnation, that would mean that literally Jesus is the means to know God. That actually you can gain knowledge of what God is like by looking at Jesus. Looking at how he responds to things. Why is this? Right? What Jesus feels, what Jesus desires as a human being. Right? Since he's God, that's what God feels and thinks and desires. So you want to know, how does God feel when a close friend dies? Well, Jesus wept. How does God respond when someone asks him a question? Well, Jesus responds quite a number of different ways, right? Sometimes he gives them an answer. Other times he gives them an answer to a different question that they did not ask. And sometimes, if they seem insincere, he intentionally says something to confuse them more. (laughs) What that says, something about how God reacts. Sometimes, right, Jesus, when he encounters an injustice sort of in a parable or in a sort of symbolic way, condemns it. Sometimes he directly condemns it. And sometimes he physically throws people out of the room. God does too. Literally speaking, you can know God by looking at Jesus. Jesus' incarnation is not merely about redemption. We'll talk about that next week. It also provides us with direct access through observation, or in the case through testimony, of what God thinks, feels, and desires just as we would have with other human beings. How do we know what other people think? We look at what they do. We look at how they react. We can do that with Jesus and hence can do that with God. 
want to know God more deeply? Look at Jesus. It's not just a bumper sticker. It actually makes sense. Here's the wilder one. God has not just made a dramatic gesture for us to know him. He's made a dramatic gesture for him to know us. This is the thing that often gets missed. Jesus' life provides God with a literal means to actually know what it's like to be a human being. What Jesus thinks, feels, and desires is literally what humans think, feel, and desire since Jesus is human. You can't underestimate how dramatic of a step this is for God, right, to make our struggles known to him. It's not just that God wants to hear it as a third-party observer. God actually wants to know it not just as the facts, right, obviously as an omniscient being, right, he knows all this stuff as a fact, He wants to experience it firsthand, just as we did, to deeply identify with us. Now, if you think about that, that's that's pretty incredible, right? It's not it's not God sitting. Sometimes we have this idea of God as a sort of hanging out there in heaven with this giant chessboard with all of us on it, moving stuff around. Right? That's not it, right? God created a world and then entered it, just like we enter it. Pretty radical. Have you ever wondered, does God deeply care about humanity in this vast universe? Does God really care about human beings? Well, look at Jesus. He became a human. Now, for those of you who are Christians, we're entering or approaching Christmas. And those of you who are part of a church like Church of Incarnation that practices uh, something called Advent, I have a challenge for you. Advent, for those of you who aren't Christians, is a time leading up to Christmas where Christians try to reflect on what does uh, Christmas mean uh, to us. I have a challenge for you this year. Try to think this year about Christmas not just in terms of the fact that Jesus is setting up Easter, setting up redemption. He is doing that, but there's another side to it, which we've been talking about today. What is the meaning of the incarnation itself? What does it mean that of all of the planets in the entire physical universe, God showed up at one of them? Or of all the beings that exist in the universe, God became one type of being, a human. If you've ever wondered what it means for there to be peace on earth as opposed to other places, this is what it means. That of all the places, God came here. If you're a Christian, challenge you to reflect on that this Christmas. This is what it means for God to be incarnate.